I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe, but our belief has implications on the way we live our life. The rest of the week, we explore those implications together, right here on Outside the Walls. Well, tomorrow is the second Sunday in the season of Lent, and we are in the middle of our Lenten practice. At my parish, we had a, um, a Lenten mission that just finished up. Uh, we had Father Sebastian Walsh join us. He's a Norbertine canon from uh, the Abbey of St. Michael in Orange County. He's going to join us on the show today as we unpack uh, the uh, the scriptures and specifically look at the way uh, that the scriptures are unfolded to us and the, the different senses of scripture, the, the four senses of scripture that are talked about in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, basically as a, as a way for us to approach scripture with maybe different eyes than our current cultural context generally allows for. So, of course, looking at the best in Scripture uh, scholarship, continuing from our conversation last week, uh, last week we talked with uh, with Dr. John Bergsma, who's a professor out at uh, Franciscan University in Steubenville. He's got a great book called Catholic Introduction to the Bible, available on Ignatius Press, specifically this first volume looking at the Old Testament. And Based on that conversation, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that with today's guest, uh, looking at how we can approach the Old Testament specifically uh, for a deeper understanding of our faith. The, the, the fathers often talk about the fact that the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is revealed to us more fully by the New Testament and in the New Testament that all of Scripture is uh, really ordered towards revealing to us the love of God the Father that's poured out on us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We are experiencing the love of the Trinity, and we do this through the revelation of God that comes in Scripture and comes through the Incarnation. So um, I'm still struck by this question that... uh, I brought up last week uh, that as I was talking with my lectors and I was encouraging them to use the process of Lexio Divina as they are preparing for their, their weekly readings, um, the, the question came, okay, well, it's easy enough to do that with the Gospels and with the New Testament, but, can, but it can be a little bit tricky and uh, confusing and um, difficult to do that with the Old Testament with some of the passages in the Old Testament, are, are trickier than others. So how do we approach that? And that question kind of is still ringing in my ears as I am processing through this season of Lent. Um, and so as, as we had this wonderful uh, opportunity to have our parish mission with Father Sebastian Walsh, um, he's unpacking the Scriptures in a very similar way to what the Fathers do. And of course, we hear here every week a reading from the, uh, the Fathers or Doctors or down on the line, uh, church documents. Um, but this kind of typology of looking at Scripture, specifically the Old Testament passages, as containing some glimpse and foreshadowing of, uh, of the New Testament, that, of course, this is the reason why, as you go to Mass, there are multiple readings, and they are generally related to one another. We can understand a little bit more about the gospel of the week because of what the Old Testament reading is all about. All of these readings are tied together by the church to show us the cohesion of Scripture. 
Now, I think the very first thing, uh, of course, there's a lot that we can do to gain a deeper understanding of Scripture. But just going back to that question of my lector, uh, the very first thing that I would say is that if you have that reading and you're getting up to proclaim something from the Scriptures at Mass, um, start by reading all of the readings because they are all connected. And maybe start to search out and pray what that link and that connection is. Because, uh, yeah, the Old Testament reading may feel um, difficult. It may be culturally odd or out there and doesn't seem to fit in with our faith at all. And yet, something about that passage of Scripture is going to reveal to us the way that God loves us and the way that God offered himself to us. And uh, and it's going to find its its culmination and its fulfillment in the New Testament, uh, it's going to be revealed, and un, you know the New Testament is kind of that little um, the decoder ring, as it were, that you get in the Cracker Jacks box that opens the the floodgates for all kinds of deep and nuanced meanings for what we find in the Old Testament, that covenant that God made with His people, and sometimes the translation doesn't really do us any favors because. Um, in the original languages, which I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on the original languages, uh, although there are people out there who are, uh, but in the original languages, we're going to see some connections that we would not otherwise see. Uh, word usage of how uh, the, the New Testament starts borrowing words from the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, right? They're, they're borrowing turns of phrases for the purpose of communicating something very specific and some very specific correlation. And it can be hard to see sometimes because we're separated by language barrier. We're also separated by cultural difference uh, and and temporal difference, right? We're at a different time. And there's a, a phrase that I, I like. I heard it from a Protestant a biblical scholar, although I don't know that it, it originates with him. Uh, but it's this, that Scripture is written for us, but not to us. We're not the original intended audience for this author. And so there's going to be some stuff that he says that might be kind of an uh, understood between he and his audience, but it's not understood immediately between us and the scriptures. And so it, it does take some intentionality uh, to maybe look up a commentary and see what the church fathers say about something and uh, unpack it a little bit more. I use um, Verbum. There's a, a Verbum.com. It's a great program. And so I don't speak the original languages, but I know a little bit about grammar and I know a little bit about uh, the structure of some of these Old Testament languages and a program like Verbum can allow me to do a word study without much effort at all. And I can see then, oh, this word right here was used somewhere else in the scripture and I can look at those specific correlations. Uh, so go take a look at Verbum.com. Anything that you can do that will help you approach scripture with a fresh perspective is going to be a good thing. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Father Sebastian Walsh. We're going to dive into this question of approaching Scripture uh, in a more substantial way. Father Sebastian is a Norbertine canon from the Abbey of St. Michael, and it's going to be a fantastic discussion. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And we'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. 
Today, we are continuing this Lenten theme where we're looking deeply into Scripture as we allow uh, ourselves to be faced with this mirror of Scripture that basically, as we read into Scripture, Scripture looks into us and points out to us the places that we need to maybe increase in detachment or increase in forgiveness or uh, some way that draws us deeper into a relationship with the crucified and resurrected Christ. We're talking today with Father Sebastian Walsh, who is a canon, an Orbertine canon from the Abbey of St. Michael in the Diocese of Orange. I've had the pleasure of listening to him all week long as he's uh, given a parish mission at my parish up in the Seattle area. Uh, he, uh, he is currently uh, there at the Abbey of St. Michael. You, you work at a parish, you help uh, administrate that parish, but you also teach philosophy at the seminary there uh, at the Abbey. That's correct. I, uh, I have a group of wonderful seminarians, and I teach five different courses, the core courses for the seminary there. It's logic and the philosophy of nature and on the soul and ethics and metaphysics, all those kind of good seminary courses that they need if they're going to pass on to the priesthood and have a good solid foundation for theology as well. Now, having listened to you this past week, it's also very obvious that you are deeply connected to Scripture. It's not just uh, the philosophical side, and the Church does that very well, integrating, again, that both and. The Church doesn't say either or a lot of times. She says, oh, we, we like that and, and we like this. Philosophy is the language of the Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that then interact with our understanding of Scripture? Yeah, well, philosophy is just a, a, an explanation, an account of the ultimate causes of things according as reason can see them, okay, Mm -hmm. from a human perspective. And theology is, so to speak, completing the picture of philosophy. It's actually getting back to prior realities, prior causes, more fundamental realities. And and there's a saying in theology, it says, grace builds upon and perfects nature. Mm -hmm. So nothing which God created in the natural world is bad. It's the same author of Revelation, and of reason, the same author of creation and of the scriptures. And therefore, the two will naturally help one another. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ, when trying to explain the things of heaven, almost always referred to earthly things, for example, mustard Mm -hmm. seeds and fish and trees and all sorts of things like that in order to explain the nature of supernatural realities. And hence, that's a sure sign that a deeper knowledge of the natural world does not conflict with, but in fact enhances our understanding of the supernatural order. Just to take a simple little example, when Jesus calls God his Father and he's the Son of God, well, where do those words come from in our vocabulary? They come from the relationship between a human father and his son. So God intends that understanding of the natural relationship to enhance our understanding of something very supernatural, namely the relationship between the first two persons in the Trinity. And uh, I've, I've heard a, a phrase that I, I rather like, and I've mentioned here on the show before, that Scripture was written for us, but not to us. And so not only do we, I think, have to understand the relationship of father to son, but those original hearers of these books of the Bible, what was their understanding of the relationship between father and son as well? Because while today's understanding of father and son may give us some insight, there's a deeper insight that can be had uh, by looking into, and of course this is where some of the, the biblical studies come in, looking into the, the sociological realities that existed in that time, in that specific place, because Christianity is a religion 
of a specific time and a specific place. And it's not, you know, it is incarnate, it is embodied. It's not just a, um, a philosophical concept only that can then be uh, laid out however you want it to in, in individual cultures. Absolutely. When, um, even though the scriptures has a, have a timeless element to them, meaning that there are truths that are true for all time and can speak to people of all time, all mm-hmm. religions, all races, they're truly Catholic. Huh? Right. And Catholic not only with regard to um, the vast different cultures of humanity, but also even all the different times in which those cultures could exist. And nevertheless, as you say, the words of Scripture were first written to those people that they were first addressed to. Right. Huh? And... And therefore, there there are keys of interpretation that often reveal wonderful and and deeper understandings or insights to the Word of God if we try to understand them in the context, the cultural and temporal context in which they were written. Now, that's one reason, by the way, why the fathers of the church are the gold standard for interpreting the Scriptures. Because to be a father of the church means that you existed in the same culture in which the scriptures were written. Right. That's why they don't have fathers of the church today or even in the Middle Ages. The last father of the church, I think, was St. John Damason, who was still in a culture continuous with the, the culture in which the scriptures were written. So the fathers of the church, having lived in that very culture, have a certain key insight and an ability to transmit revelation with a, a, with a deeper authority, I would say, and deeper insight. So absolutely, we need to look into those things, and the, and the best way to do that is to look at those members of the church who were in the same cultural milieu as the, the authors of Scripture. Yeah. So let's take a look at uh, a typical understanding of, of Scripture. I've, I've seen two different kinds of um, extremes in, in the approach to Scripture. One is, I could never understand all that's going on in Scripture, so I'm just going to leave that to the priest, and I'm going to let him... Uh, I'm going to listen at Mass, and that's my extent of a relationship with Scripture. That's one side of it. The other side of it is, oh, I've seen people approach Scripture all the time. I'm just going to, you know, uh, put my thumb in the Bible and kind of flip through the pages and put my finger down, and whatever it says right there, that's the thing I'm going to do, and I'll just interpret it on the fly of of what I feel it's saying to me, and and that's how I approach Scripture. So both a maybe a little bit of a scrupulosity with Scripture and a little bit of a laxity with Scripture— Talk to us about maybe a healthy way that we can come and approach the Scriptures and look at the the different senses of Scripture, getting into the allegorical. Yes, there are some things that aren't necessarily explicitly in Scripture, but doing so within the confines of the mind of the Church. Absolutely. The um, I'll address the second part first there. When you have those people that come to the Scriptures and they um, they sort of, as you say, interpret it on the fly— um, they're not aware that the Scriptures themselves warn us against private interpretations of Scripture. St. Peter, in one of his epistles, says, no prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. Hmm. Okay, In other words, um, and he gives a reason, he says, because those who wrote the Scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. And therefore, we have to interpret the Scripture according to the intention of the authors of Scripture as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. We can't just impose or put a meaning on the scriptures and make turn the scriptures into a big mirror of myself, right. you know, where we just sit there and we say, 
here are my feelings, here are my desires, here are my opinions, here's my, my um, you know, worldview, and let me open the scriptures and now put that into the scriptures and misinterpret it. Because as we know, you can misinterpret practically any text. Right. right? Well, and as you mentioned in the, the homily on the temptations of Jesus, uh, the devil himself quotes scripture. And Absolutely. And he interprets it in the way that he wants. And so there is this, this sense that uh, it's just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that we're going to be reading it correctly. That's correct. That's right. We need more than just our own minds mm-hmm. if we're going to interpret the Word of God. And in a sense, to do it that way is a form of idolatry, where we're making God and the Word of God into our own image after our own preferences, rather than having ourselves be shaped and formed by the Word itself. Absolutely. That's the big danger there, huh? Mm-hmm. Now, the, the second uh, position that you outlined, those who who seem to have very little interest in Scripture except for what they just have to get from the priest or something like that. Now, again, that's just not in keeping with the Scriptures either. Um, St. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right. Huh? That doesn't sound very richly if you're only willing to hear the word of Christ for just a few minutes every Sunday. Mm-hmm. No, it seems to me that that um, we're supposed to pour over the word of God, meditating upon the Word of God in our hearts, just as Mary did, right? Over and over, reading over and over again, but always with the assistance of the church, right? And and the assistance of the church doesn't mean that you can only have interpretations that are officially sanctioned in a you know some written document right. for the Bible, but it does mean interpreting it according to the principles that the church gives us, right? The principles that the apostles themselves handed on in the scriptures and also interpreting it in such a way that it does not contradict the deposit of the faith, which has been handed on through the church, uh, for example, through tradition and in Scripture itself. Right. So one simple principle of interpreting Scripture, you shouldn't interpret it in such a way that it contradicts another passage in Scripture, because then you're not understanding it correctly. Right. So we need to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, and to do that, we have to approach the Word of Christ daily, and meditate upon it. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of ways that you can do that. Of course, I I love the um, the lectionary. I mean, going to I go to usccb.org, and right there in the corner, they've got the calendar, and it gives me the mass readings for the day. And one of the things that's beautiful about that is that the, those readings show us the connectivity of Scripture that we see. Uh, for those who can't go to mass every day, mm-hmm. uh, they you can see that connection of the Old Testament reading to the Psalm to the New Testament reading and say, hey, there's there's something, these are not just isolated books and silos that are telling us something. It is a full, complete picture altogether. Absolutely. And, and even if you can go to Mass every day, being able to say, I'm going to sit with this and chew on this and uh, maybe even read the day's readings before I get to Mass so that i I'm not having to listen for comprehension. Now I'm listening for the spirit within that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so so St. Augustine, too, he pointed out, um, not only should we interpret Scripture in such a way that one part doesn't contradict the other, he also says, as an important principle of interpreting Scripture, is we should let the clearer parts help explain the more obscure parts. Huh? Mm-hmm. So And understand that there's one author of all of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, who used many instruments, but nevertheless, all of them were communicating the Word of God that was that was 
given to them by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we should expect a, a complete harmony and unity throughout all of Scripture. St. Augustine, in his um, beautiful work, The City of God, I think the 17th and 18th books of The City of God, he goes through an exegesis of the entire Old Testament and shows a profound harmony and unity uh, throughout the entire Old Testament. It's yeah. really very, very beautiful. There is this belief in certain circles of Christianity outside the Catholic faith that, that think that Scripture is completely explicit in all its ways, and that I ought to be able to approach it and see it and understand it. And I think maybe that under that belief is one of the reasons Catholics are a little bit nervous about it, because they go to it and it seems very clear that Christ, Scripture is not perfectly clear, and it can be confusing. And so I love that that phrase, letting the, the clearer parts of Scripture help us to understand those that are less clear. Yes, absolutely. The fact of the matter is Scripture itself tells us that parts of Scripture are difficult. Again, if you go to the epistles of St. Peter, he says, there are some things written in St. Paul which are difficult to understand, mm -hmm. and the wicked twist them to their own destruction. I have to wonder if there's a little bit of Peter there that was just kind of gigging on Paul as well. <laughs> We're talking today with Father Sebastian Walsh, talking about approaching Scripture as Catholics, something we ought to be doing all the time, but dedicating ourselves specifically to this Lent. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash stepoutsidethewalls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. There's much more to this conversation coming up right after the break, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with... Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. And the implication we're looking at this week is the belief that the Scripture is the inspired Word of God. And if that's true, if God inspired these books, and if He is the, the divine author of these books, then that has implications both in how we approach it, in how we allow it to speak into our lives, but also in how we understand it and how we read it. The Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about the senses of Scripture. Of course, they it is a uh, the Catechism didn't come up with those terms. It's more of a reference book to help us find uh, the wisdom of the Church. It's kind of a like a drill bit is to mining. It is the tool by which we can see the riches uh, that, that dwell within. And so these senses of Scripture uh, come from the, the Fathers. All the way back there, they talk about the different ways of reading the Bible. And uh, you mentioned that again back in our parish mission this last week. I'd love to unpack a little bit of that here today. Um, there, of course, it's one book, it's one passage, and yet, depending on what lens you look at it through, uh, can speak to a number of different areas in our life. Yeah, very good. So the, what's the origin, as you ask, what is the origin of interpreting the Scripture in, in those various spiritual senses? Huh? So it turns out there's uh, a literal sense of Scripture, mm -hmm. sometimes called by the fathers of the Church the historical sense, because it's just what happened historically, you know, so, you know, an event like the Exodus is a historical event, and right. there's a literal meaning to that. And that's the meaning directly intended by the words, directly intended and expressed by the words of Scripture themselves. That's the literal sense of any passage. And then there are spiritual senses. In other words, what do the things themselves 
that the words signify, what do the things now re-signify? Mm-hmm. Um, and because God is the Lord of history, he can make real historical events also have spiritual meanings, right? So um, I won't go into great detail, but the Exodus account can be read in a spiritual sense as a liberation of the soul from bondage to Satan, mm-hmm. crossing over the Red Sea, baptism, and then finally to the promised land, heaven, etc. Even in the book of uh, Peter, we see him talking about the story of Noah's Ark and relating that to baptism and using that as a, a spiritual sense to show us the correlation in God's saving acts. Absolutely, and that was the next thing I was going to mention is the fact that the authors of Scripture use spiritual senses. So the origin of our interpretation of the Scripture using spiritual senses is in the Scripture itself, right? Aided by the Holy Spirit, St. Paul specifically says that crossing the Red Sea was an image of baptism. Mm -hmm. St. Peter specifically says the Ark of Noah was an image of the church, right? right? So people want to know, where do we get this thing that the boat is a church, right, Right. the Catholic Church? From the Bible, from the Scriptures (laughs) themselves, right? Um, where do we get the idea that the sea signifies the world sometimes, or the sea signifies, you know, a, a, a place of flux and so forth? These things are scriptural um, uh, interpretations yeah. imposed by the very authors of Scripture themselves with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. This is a little tangent, this idea that the seam is the world or the flux then when you understand that and you have that concept, you go to the book of Revelation, and it says of the new Jerusalem, and there is no sea. Yes. And you have these kinds of things where now there's a deeper meaning that's drawn out of, of what we have by having these spiritual interpretations. Absolutely. Right. There's a consistency throughout Scripture of the types. In mm-hmm. other words, what the things signify, you see them all the way from beginning to end. Huh? Yeah. So, so that's the origin of these spiritual senses is not just sort of the idea or of some theologian, some you know medieval theologian or something. These are found in Scripture themselves. Now, this we've got the literal sense and we have the spiritual sense, and the spiritual sense is broken into multiple types. That's right. There's three different spiritual senses. The Catechism of the Catholic Church outlines these, but the the um, early Church Fathers, for example, Saint Jerome and Saint Augustine outline these three senses. So let me just give them to you in order. You've got the so-called allegorical sense. Mm -hmm. And that sense is a sense in which the historical events of scriptures can be read or interpreted as signifying the mysteries of faith in this life. So for example, the mystery of the Eucharist, the mystery of baptism, the mystery of our Lord's incarnation, his passion and death, and so forth. Those would all be the allegorical sense of Scripture. If you read, for example, a passage in the Old Testament and it refers to, you know, the bread from heaven, man as a bread from heaven, right. that refers to the Eucharist in the allegorical sense. Huh? Mm-hmm. Then you've got the anagogical sense. The anagogical sense refers to those historical passages meaning or signifying the things of the next life. So you mentioned, for example, the New Jerusalem, right? So the city Jerusalem, if we read about the city Jerusalem, we can apply the meaning in a spiritual sense to refer to the heavenly Jerusalem and so forth. And then finally, we have the moral sense. And the moral sense is an instruction, a spiritual instruction derived from the historical events that tell us about the moral principles about how we ought to live. 
So, for example, the, the story of the Exodus, you have the people of Israel fleeing from sin, um, and, and they're fleeing from Pharaoh, and that signifies fleeing from sin, and they cross through the Red Sea, and that signifies being baptized. They receive the manna, that re- signifies receiving communion on your way as you're going through the desert of this life, and then finally, you know, ending up in the promised land. So, in the moral sense, it teaches or instructs us about our moral life. Yeah. We're talking today with Father Sebastian Walsh of the uh, the Abbey of St. Michael in California, talking about the, the senses of Scripture. So we have these um, various writings of the Fathers and the uh, the Middle Ages, the, the doctors of the Church, who, from, from a perspective of just looking at it in the literal sense, seem to be taking uh, really broad liberties with interpretation. Uh, you were talking about uh, Jesus giving the parables uh, and talked about Jesus getting in the boat, and the boat now signified the the flux of the world and the uncertainty, and that he's inviting us into the boat. And I'm I'm sitting here, I'm intrigued by it all, and I'm going, wow, I did not get that at all. So as someone is looking at these senses of Scripture and saying, I want to begin doing it, maybe engage with Scripture in this way, what are some steps, maybe uh, some resources that they can use to help them unpack some of the riches of Scripture that are not immediately available in the historical sense. Oh, very good. Well, first of all, there's some general principles that you can use with regard to the Scriptures. And um, and I'm going to back up a little bit way before your question, okay. give those general principles, and then answer your question in light of those principles. Perfect. Um, the Scripture itself, inspiration of the Scripture is attributed especially to the person of the Holy Spirit. Huh? Mm-hmm. And if we look at the scriptures, we realize that the, um, the, each person of the Holy Trinity has their own special role they're playing in the course of biblical inspiration and in relation to one another. So we see, for example, that each person of the Trinity is supposed to reveal the person from whom they proceed from whom they're sent. So the Son, who's sent by the Father and who proceeds from the Father, his mission is to reveal the person from whom he's sent, which is the Father. That's why Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Right. And then the person of the Holy Spirit, his mission is to reveal the persons from whom he proceeds and by whom he, has, he is sent. And so the Holy Spirit's mission, part of his mission, is to reveal the person of the Son, right? So Jesus says in John chapter 16, he will glorify me because he will take from what is mine, right, and reveal it to you. So the, um, the Holy Spirit's mission then is to reveal the person of the Son. So when we read Scripture, we have to realize that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of love, but not just any spirit of love a spirit of love proceeding from truth, a spirit of truth. So from that we gain one general universal principle about interpreting all of Scripture. Scripture must be interpreted according to truth and in love. Right. And so since uh, the Word of God is the truth, there can be no false assertions in Scripture, inerrancy of Scripture. That's point one. Mm -hmm. Point two we have to interpret Scripture according to charity so it builds up charity. If we read a passage and we say it doesn't build up charity, that's a wrong interpretation. And St. Augustine in On Christian Doctrine, one of his good works on interpreting Scripture, 
He says simply, uh, as long as you're interpreting Scripture in accordance with the truth of the faith and in love, then you can be sure that your interpretation does not go far afield. You, it might not be exactly the one intended by the author, but nevertheless, even if it isn't, you're like someone who arrives at the same place by a different route. Oh. And this is the same thing that, that said multiple times throughout Scripture, that within the Spirit and acting in love against these things, there is no, is no law. So maybe right. it's not perfect, but it is perfecting us nonetheless. That's right. That's right, exactly. Now, if you want to know more specifically how to interpret a passage of Scripture, then in order to verify that a spiritual sense is in fact intended by the sacred author and the Holy Spirit, Mm-hmm. then what you have to do is you have to look at the various elements of the spiritual sense and see that they all fit together in a certain unity or harmony. So the example I gave you of the Exodus, huh, the people fleeing from Pharaoh, right? You have all the elements work. You have Pharaoh representing Satan, bondage to Egypt representing bondage to sin, escaping through the, first of all, the, the, the ten plagues, which represent the ten commandments, right? Mm-hmm. And then crossing over the Red Sea, which signifies baptism, in which the dominion of Satan is destroyed, then going through the desert and receiving the manna, which is like the Eucharist, and then finally going into the promised land, but it turns out they're not ready, so they have to wander the desert for 40 years, huh? A time of cleansing or purgation, which signifies at the end of our life, purgatory, and then finally entering into the promised land and taking possession. All the elements perfectly fit what we know already is taught by doctrine in other places of Scripture. The clearer senses of Scripture interpret the more obscure. So those um, spiritual senses are verified by their internal consistency um, with the other teachings of the Scriptures. So that's just a, a, a kind of a little lesson on how you might interpret the spiritual sense in an authentic way. So as I'm listening to you give your homilies and your sessions, uh, I begin recognizing, oh, he's using a, a spiritual sense. He sounds like the fathers because I've been reading the uh, the Office of Readings out of the Breviary. Mm. Uh, and when I have in the Gospels taking the time to go and read through uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, Catina Aurea. Oh, yes. And looking at the way that the fathers approach Scripture, uh, that, yes, it's going to take time and it's going to take practice, but I think maybe one of the best ways to do that is to listen to the masters do it. Absolutely. To spend time with Augustine, to spend time with uh, with St. Thomas Aquinas and watch them uh, vicariously, watch them interpret Scripture and say, okay, uh, maybe you know, almost as as an apprenticeship with them. Yes. In allowing the scriptures to dwell in us richly. That's right, and um, and I would say they're the gold standard of interpretation. And look, the fathers were not just theologians; they were friends of God. Yeah. So because of their deep spiritual life, it was as if they were able to consult the author of Scripture himself when trying to interpret. We're talking today with Father Sebastian Walsh and Norbertine Cannon from the Abbey of St. Michael in, uh, in Orange County. Join our conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on daily life. I'm your host, TL. Today we're unpacking the process of unpacking Scripture. <laughs> we talked today with Father, uh, Father Sebastian Walsh, who is a Norbertine canon from the Abbey of St. Michael in Orange County, California. He was up in my neck of the woods doing a, a parish mission for us where he, uh, he helped us encounter Christ through the parables and conversations of Jesus. And we looked at the different interpretations and the ways that these scriptures go sometimes quite a bit deeper than simply that message that's right on the surface. So since I had him in my backyard all week long, we had a, a sit down and we kind of unpacked the broader strokes of that parish mission for you here today. If you missed any part of that, or you want to share it with your friends and neighbors, uh, well, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There's more to my conversation with Father Sebastian as we dig into what it means to be a Norbertine, what it means to be a canon, and his own vocation story that brought him into the Norbertine order. That extra segment is available online to all of those who support the show through Patreon. All of our Patreon supporters get weekly extra segments. For as little as $5 a month, they get four to five extra segments with our guests, taking a deeper dive into the topic. You can join their numbers. Find out more information about it over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link, support the show, and just peruse. See what kinds of things are available and see if you might like to join their numbers. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's reading from Scripture and from Church History. We're taking these readings from tomorrow as we celebrate the transfiguration of Jesus. We start with a reading from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. While he was praying, his face changed in appearance and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep, but becoming fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As they were about to part from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah but he did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud came and cast a shadow over them, and they became frightened when they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my chosen son. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not at that time tell anyone what they had seen. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. Anytime I sit down with a passage, specifically a narrative passage like this that's telling a, a story that actually happened, a historical thing, uh, I'm curious about the details that are included and the details that are left out. What are the things that this author thought were important enough uh, to be put in? Because you think about it, as they are... Um, communicating this story, and they're doing so on a scroll, there's only so much space. This is why Luke and Acts are two different books. Uh, they are both letters to the same person from the same author uh, and really are one single narrative. 
but he ran out of scroll space and you had to start over. So he, Luke takes the time and he separates it out from the book of Luke and Acts, talking about the things that Jesus began to do and tell before his ascension and the things that Jesus did through his church uh, after his ascension. So the ascension becomes that that point in time that he decides to split the books. So word space is at a premium with uh, some of these larger works. And so when a word is included, it's important, right? When a detail is included, it's important. And it's in there for a reason. Uh, so as I look at this, a couple of things I notice. Here we have Jesus uh, taking Peter, James, and John up the mountain to pray and sleep overcomes them, right? Now we see this, we're going to see this again when we get into the Passion, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to uh, the garden and asks them to wait awake with him for one hour and to pray. And here we see that the habits of Jesus and his time, uh, you know, his his daily routine was uh, not something that that the apostles were really able to keep up with, right? They, they had trouble staying awake when Jesus went to pray. But here, you would think after this, right? After Peter, James, and John go up the mountain with, uh, with Jesus, and they are awoken from a dead sleep, right? It says, but becoming fully awake, you know, the presence of uh, the glory of God and the bright, dazzling garment of, of what Jesus was wearing in the presence of two people that you didn't hear coming up, that would wake you up pretty quick. And I think about my children who um, in the morning, sometimes they are, the, the lights come on and they jump out of bed and they look for a moment like they are fully engaged and fully awake, but then they start stumbling ever so slightly. And you're like, Ooh, child, you need to slow down a little bit. And I see this in Peter here where he, it says, but becoming fully awake, and he starts talking and uh, throwing out sentences. But then Luke goes on to say, but he did not know what he was saying. But here you have Peter, James, and John who have woken from a dead sleep to see Jesus with Elijah and Moses. You would think that a few weeks later, you would think that being taken up to the mountain again to pray they would be more attentive and more alert. In some way, uh, it looks as though God is giving them this experience now before the Passion. God is giving them the opportunity to endure the Passion and giving them really the means by which they can overcome temptation a little bit later, one that they don't quite rise up to the challenge of. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what St. Leo the Great says about this specific event. The Lord reveals his glory in the presence of chosen witnesses. His body is like that of the rest of mankind, but he makes it shine with such splendor that his face becomes like the sun in glory and his garments as white as snow. The great reason for this transfiguration was to remove the scandal of the cross from the hearts of his disciples and to prevent the humiliation of his voluntary suffering from disturbing the faith of those who had witnessed the surpassing glory that lay concealed. With no less forethought, he was also providing a firm foundation for the hope of the Holy Church. The whole body of Christ was to understand the kind of transformation that it would receive as his gift. 
the members of that body were to look forward to a share in that glory, which first blazed out in Christ their head. The Lord himself had spoken of this when he foretold the splendor of his coming. Then the just will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. St. Paul the Apostle bore witness to this same truth when he said, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not to be compared with the future glory that is to be revealed in us. In another place he says, You are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This marvel of the transfiguration contains another lesson for the apostles to strengthen them and lead them into the fullness of knowledge. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, appeared with the Lord in conversation with him. This was an order to fulfill exactly through the presence of these five men, the text which says, Before two or three witnesses, every word is ratified. What word could be more firmly established, more securely based, than the word which is proclaimed by the trumpets of both Old and New Testaments, sounding in harmony, and by the utterances of ancient prophecy and the teaching of the gospel in full agreement with each other? The writings of the two Testaments support each other, the radiance of the transfiguration reveals clearly and unmistakably the one who had promised by signs for telling him under the veils of mystery. As St. John says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. In him, the promise made through the shadows of prophecy stands revealed along with the full meaning of the precepts of the law. He is the one who teaches the truth of prophecy through his presence and makes obedience to the commandments possible through grace. In the preaching of the Holy Gospel, all should receive a strengthening of their faith. No one should be ashamed of the cross of Christ, through which the world has been redeemed. No one should fear to suffer for the sake of justice. No one should lose confidence in the reward that has been promised. The way to rest is through toil. The way to life is through death. Christ has taken on himself the whole weakness of our lowly human nature. If then we are steadfast in our faith in him and in our love for him, we win the victory that he has won. We receive what he has promised. When it comes to obeying the commandments or enduring adversity, the words uttered by the Father should always echo in our ears, This is my Son, the Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That reading from church history comes from a sermon by St. Leo the Great. The revelation of God that comes to us through Scripture, and St. Leo points it out so very well, is a continuing invitation to us. We are invited to the mountain of transfiguration to see the glory of the Lord and then to let that transform us and give us courage and strength as we face difficulties, knowing that ultimately Christ is victorious. That's all the time we have for today. This week's episode was brought to you by Ryan and Sarah Jepson and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Support the Show link, and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. <laughs>